This editorially independent podcast is supported by Visit Flanders. You know, because I would like this to be fairly participatory today, so you guys are not just here to watch, you're here to, to take part. And maybe a good way to start, because it's about Brussels Beer Cafe, is um, maybe you could turn to someone near you who you don't know and tell them about your favourite cafe or an experience you had in a cafe that you really like for two minutes. doesn't have to be in Brussels, doesn't have to be in Belgium. It doesn't have to be about a particular beer. But if you could uh, just turn around and sort of say, hello, and here's my favourite cafe. <laughs> the Brussels Beer Cafe is an institution that has enjoyed as much acclaim as it has suffered fatigue. This podcast is a panel discussion recorded in a Brussels beer cafe recently in front of an intimate live audience. The central question we were trying to answer was whether the Brussels beer cafe is a doomed relic or a durable icon. The event was part of the Beer Cult Festival, a series of tastings, talks and tours in locations across Brussels over one weekend organised by Owen Walsh to celebrate the fifth birthday of his blog Brussels Beer City and to launch his new book, A History of Brussels Beers in 50 Objects. You should buy the book, it's great. The Brussels Beer Café in which we recorded this podcast was Het Goud Blomoke in Papier or in French La Fleur en Papier Doré. It's one of the oldest cafés in Brussels. The figureheads of Brussels surrealism would meet there in the mid-20th century. René Magritte, Louis Scutenaire, Michel Marien and others. Later on, regular customers would include artists and writers like Jean de Buffet, Wout Hulbour and Hugo Klaus. The café's founder, the poet and art dealer Geert van Bruyne, created a bizarre interior using an assortment of bric-a-brac and kitsch. To demonstrate how relevant a topic this is right now, whether beer cafes in Brussels are doomed relics or durable icons, the Hautblomoke Café closed down a few weeks after we recorded this podcast. Its central location in Brussels, its unrivaled heritage and its wonderful atmosphere weren't enough to save it. This is a real crossroads for those in hospitality. And when beautiful things die, they're often gone forever. The panel guests here are top-notch, Yvonne de Batz of De La Seine, former café owner Jody Lecieux, and the writer-activist and historian Joachim de Santos Barbosa of Bruxelles Fabrique. We talked about the romantic power, the complex business, and the cultural significance of the Brussels Beer Café, and what might be in store for its future. I hope, I hope there was a... I hope there were some nice stories there, um, and uh, I, you know, let's continue this conversation together after the event. Maybe in the morning. Um. I'm Brendan Kearney, and you're listening to the Belgian Smack Podcast.
maybe the first thing to do is to introduce our guests. Um, so uh, to my right here, we have Yvan Debats from uh, Brasserie de la Seine. Round of applause. <laughs> Further over, we have uh, Jody Le Sieux, yes. uh, former uh, cafe owner here in Brussels. Round of applause. <laughs> and over on the far side, we have Joaquin de Santos Barbosa, who is from Brussels Fabrique, uh, who wrote the book about Istamine and Café. Welcome. Um, maybe before we get started... And, and who are you? Oh, sorry, yeah. yeah. Who are you? I'm, I'm not important, but my name is Brendan Kearney, and I run a small website and podcast called Belgian Smack, where we try to um, find out more about and celebrate Belgian beer and food. Yes. Um, okay, well, maybe we just uh, start to find out a little bit about our guests and their relationship with cafes. So uh, maybe we start with the, the book, Joachim. Um, you're part of an organization called Brussels Fabrique. Um, could you tell us a little a bit about that and you know, why the hell you would write a book about Brussels cafes? <laughs> okay, sure. Thanks. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, lovely to be here today. So really glad to be here with this uh, wonderful panel. Um, so what is Bruxelles Fabrique? Bruxelles Fabrique is uh, an organization, basically it's uh, a bunch of uh, enthusiasts, there's uh, one of them here for, for instance, uh, that are just like really passionate about the industrial and social heritage of Brussels. So we really have at our hearts to see a bit, you know, how we can put together projects and ways of kind of like getting people to know a little bit more about all these facets of uh, local history and social history, which many people don't know all too often, unfortunately, also because the city changes so fast. So basically, we've done a number of projects around that. And one of them was actually this book. So the idea for this book is actually pretty straightforward, actually. We, have, uh, we had uh, one of our former members who unfortunately passed away, who was also uh, who was a collector of uh, um, objects related to uh, Brussels breweries. And when he passed away, we thought, well, it would be really a shame if this pro this object just got like uh, lost forever because there was a whole collection around it. And so we thought, let's just uh, take this collection over and let's see what we can do, uh, make out of it. Let's see what we can do with it. And then we thought, well, actually, you know what? Doesn't seem to be that many books about uh, like, uh, cafes in Brussels, about the social history of cafes, a bit more saying a few things about cafes. So why don't we use these objects and try to put something together? So this was like uh, the, uh, what we tried to do from the onset. We went to many publishers and so on. No one was totally kind of like interested or willing to take the risk because publishing is a quite a risky business these days, unfortunately. Uh, so we, we figured out, well, we're just going to try and just write it ourselves and publish it ourselves. So that's what we did. We got also some support from, uh, from the uh, region and the uh, French-speaking community to, uh, to have it, uh, uh, to write it and then edit it and then uh, sort of like publish it. And we pretty much done er everything uh, ourselves. And I think we are very proud of the result and we're really glad it has met with uh, quite a lot of success and uh, that it can, it can bring all, uh, all those stories really to like a wider audience than only kind of like the, those that are really into the, the subject, I think. Yeah, so it's like it's like trying to understand Brussels, you know, through this one facet of mm. history or of like Indeed, cultural yeah. sort of cachet. Um, and was there anything that you learned while making the book mm. about cafes mm. in Brussels that you didn't know beforehand? 
Yeah, well, there's quite a lot, actually. I mean, there were many, sort of like some bits and pieces that we knew from here and there, we sort of like suspected. So in a way, the whole uh, writing up uh, process of this book really sort of like allowed us to really go a little bit in depth into these different subjects and then to figure out that like, actually there's even so much more that we didn't even uh, suspect. So I think we all ended up, I mean, we are quite a whole bunch of co-authors, including Thierry here, and uh, we uh, all ended up learning actually uh, a lot, uh, I think, during the process. Also because we got together uh, activists, we got together uh, sort of like scholars, researchers, uh, people that knew about uh, this bit of the cafes, this other bit, and just like putting everyone together, like every time we would have like a sort of like a writing committee would go into endless discussions on, ah, yeah, what about this and this? Ah, yeah, it's just this, this and that. So it was just a very rich uh, process. Uh, so let, was let it about, today. sorry. To let, let today. Yeah. This and this and this and that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. was it about like finding like personalities or was it about finding traditions that maybe are lost that you didn't know about or what were the things that surprised um, you? I think, um, I think it was really more about uh, sort of, uh, you know, Taking a step back uh, on what we sort of like assume is general knowledge on cafes and just digging a little bit into speci uh, the specifics. And uh, I mean, there's a few things we knew or suspected, but I know just look at the very rich uh, history of, for instance, political organizing in cafes in, uh, in Brussels. I mean, there's uh, some things we knew, but then when you talk to actual scholars that have uh, uh, looked into that and they themselves talk to other people that have other bits and pieces here and there, I think this is uh, how it gets much richer. So yeah, there's an aspect of tradition, there's a, a whole aspect of how the social life is even richer than we, uh, we thought really. So cafes in Brussels are actually the real seat of power in Belgium. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I don't know, maybe, um, maybe not nowadays, but uh, yeah, there was a whole period of time, especially uh, the turn of the 20th century, where of course a lot of... Uh, so like the political life uh, of Brussels was going on in the cafe, so yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you're not from Brussels, Jody. I'm not. Uh, you're actually not from Belgium. No. You're uh, I'm French. You're French. Okay, so tell, tell us a little bit where you're from and how the hell you Sorry. ended up here. I was born in a little town outside of Lille, so northern France, uh, born and raised. And then when I turned 18, I traveled a little bit. Uh, I went to Canada for four years. I went to Madagascar for a few months too. And then I went back to France and I was bored. Uh, so that was uh, almost seven years ago. Uh, and I decided to go have some drinks in Brussels to just whip some hair and Let off some steam. Yes. Uh, and then I never went back. <laughs> <laughs> so that was almost seven years ago. But you were kind of working, before you came to, to Brussels, you were working in, in cafes, beer industry a little bit, and yep. your family had also been involved. With yes, I was uh, born and raised into cafes and uh, pubs as, as far as I can remember. Uh, when I was little, I would have uh, 10 francs uh, to go uh, play some, uh, some football or whatever and uh, have a Coke. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, you know that those nights where uh, your parents, they just uh, keep drinking at the counter and you just fall asleep on, a, on the chairs with the coats over you? <laughs> that was my childhood. And uh, my dad was only in a bar. And then later on, my brother owned the bar too. He's 10 years older than me. So I spent lots of hours, many, uh, at the counter with my brother. And it was quite natural for me to own my bar one day. So that was an early ambition? Yes. Uh, actually, to be a boss. Not, I didn't know of a bar yet, but to, to own something. That was the ambition at first. And uh, 
Uh, then I fell into craft beers and working in bars, and it was pretty natural to me to open my own one uh, after the experience I had before. So, so what was the what are your kind of the, the, the best memories you have, or the most formative memories of working in cafes in Lille? Like the most memorable? Yeah. Uh, my first Taras Buba, actually, <laughs> in Lille. Uh, uh, I was uh, actually uh, working in a really student beer in uh, La Rue de la Soif, like, like every, every city has, right? Uh, and uh, so I was just working there for, to pay my rent. And I was a regular at La Capsule in Lille, which is a craft beer bar. Um, and uh, before I went to, to be a regular, well, I had to start somewhere. And I asked the bartender at the time, uh, what should I have? Light in alcohol, um, easy to drink, straightforward. And he poured me a Taras Buba. And <laughs> then it began. And was it like, then I want to work here now? Or how did that? Yes. And, then, oh, yes. and then you got a job at Capsule? Yes. So how did you get from Capsule to Brussels? Uh, I met uh, a guy <laughs> <laughs> who was a bartender at the Mouder Olympic. Uh, and uh, we became friends and were going back and forth from Lille to, uh, to Brussels. And I was having drinks at Mouder Olympic. And he is one of the reasons why I never left Brussels, actually. Okay. Yeah. So coming as a French person uh, who had some experience of, of cafes and pubs and enjoyed that and had a family background, what were your first impressions, and be honest, about Brussels and Belgian beer? Uh, my first impressions were that it was so uh, easy and honest. Uh, like when you, uh, when you go to uh, buy, well, it was seven years ago, so it was really my first impression uh, it was so easy to um, to uh, order and um, and have uh, the one behind the counter to understand you and what you want, and he listens. He listens to what you want and what you need. Compared to France. Yes, absolutely. In France, it's they, they don't even uh, give uh, any interest on what you what you want. They just want to make the money, and oh, you want something? Uh, they, they don't even know what sour is. They, they missed it sour and bitterness most of the time. Well, at the time. And uh, they just, uh, okay, I, I need to go fast and make a lot of the customers and blah, blah, blah. Whereas here in Brussels, or I think in Belgium in general, like, okay, what do you want? What do you need? And they come and ask, did you like it? Uh, was it interesting for you to discover this? And it makes you want to stay. It's comfy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was a much more positive experience. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. I wasn't Definitely. expecting you to say that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's great. Um, but when I asked Ivan uh, about the panel and, and we were talking to Owen about inviting Ivan on, the first question he had for us was, are we talking about Brussels beer cafes or are we talking about Brussels cafes? Mm. So why did you ask that question and what's the distinction for you there? You know, and what, why would you ask it? Well, just because the the beer cafes, of course, are interesting, um, but most of the time they attract one same kind of public, and so I, I find them less interesting from a human perspective, because you, you because you you meet way less different people. What I love in Brussels cafe is that you you will meet the entire world actually, and so it's way more open-minded and, um, and 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 interesting. 
So that 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 was the, the reason of of, yeah, of, so of my question because I think you you lose the the essence of the Brussels cafe and of Brussels if, if you speak only about the the beer cafes. It's something different. And by public, you mean like we're talking? How do we say this possibly? The beer enthusiast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the hard beer enthusiast. And I mean, is it in your mind? Is it oh, we should have beer cafes, um, which are for beer enthusiasts, or we should have cafes? which have better beer and we should fight for that kind of third place mm. thing that rather than have the, the beer cafes? Yeah. Or, or the, do you think there's a place for both? The second category is of course my, my favorite because it's there that you can really do something for the people, not tell them you are obliged to drink this otherwise you look like a loser. Mm -hmm. But okay, you have a choice, you have a, uh, the classic selection of uh, let's say The, the common beers you find in every cafe, industrial ones, less industrial ones, whatever, but easy to find. And then we have the, those more niche products that are made by craft people, local or not, and you can try them. And, and maybe we like them, maybe not, you go back to, to your classics. And, and, and there is no judgment, but just a place where you get the possibility to open doors to, to people. It's, it's, it's really that. No, and I like what you say about like no judgment because I think that's a thing that beer industry has but there are challenges to creating a space like that mm. you know brewery ownership of cafes um, price points for certain bar owners and we'll mm. maybe get into some of those later mm. um, but I think what's interesting about your background you know pre Ivan the Brewer <laughs> is that you were actually uh, yeah. a, so a social worker would that be the mm. best way to describe uh, it? Yeah, yeah 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 definitely yeah and, yeah. and What did you do in that sort of role, and how did that shape your view of, of the cafe as a social space? Well, actually, um, I, I knew before I was a social worker the importance of cafes in a society like, like ours. I mean, for, for, for me, the cafes is one of the, the main pillars of, of a society like, like Belgium in general and, and Brussels in, in, in particular, uh, because it's a, it's a place that saved many lives. Uh, Of course, there is always the issue of too much drinking, which is not good, but we know all that. So let's put it on the, on the side. We are between adults here. Um, but honestly, um, the type of cafes we have here and the fact that those, in those cafes, and especially in, in, in Brussels, you can see many different layers of population. Uh, I mean, 20 people, blue color, colors, uh, poor people, rich people, educated people, less educated people, whatever. And that you can get that, that mix. Um, it's, um, it's again an, an open door uh, towards the, the whole society. Uh, you, you learn to be, a, I think, a, a better citizen in, in, in those kind of places. And also it's for a lot of people, it was and still is today, The best of those cafes will be like their second family. You know, many people have problems, and this is not stopping uh, by far today, unfortunately. And they need a place where they can just chill out, relax, and be listened. And and this this relates to what Jody was was saying that in in our cafes, the um, the tenants. Um, the owner or the staff, most of the time, they listen to the people, they talk to them. You have a social work to do when you're a bartender in a cafe, definitely. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I think that this really, literally saved many, many, many lives. Yeah. I think also, you know, some of the problems in society today, and I don't want to have too broad a brush, but it seems to be more and more that like the polarization of, uh, polarization of different groups 
means that people don't talk to each other from different backgrounds, from different socioeconomic backgrounds, from different political viewpoints. And maybe the cafe is the place where, you know, th- those groups can come mm. together and kind of, you know, if you if you see each other and talk to each other, you can maybe have a better chance of understanding each other. Mm. Um, so that's part of it. Mm. I think with the, with the um, to understand um, cafes today and maybe the the joy they bring or the challenges they face. It's important to understand where they've come from and Brussels has its own, as Belgium does, but Brussels in particular has its own sort of mishmashed history. Um, maybe, uh, Joachim, one of the first questions we should look at is the, is the name cafe because there has been a lot of different types of drinking institution in Brussels. You had Estamine, you had, I don't know, Cabaret, you have, um, you know, I think there's different names for, you know, what's, what's a tavern, what's a bar. Was there a distinction between like a, a traditional estaminet and what we know as a modern cafe today? And like, how how did it, how has it evolved? Yeah, so well, this could potentially be an endless discussion in terms of names because uh, there's like books written on that with like uh, all the different names that we have seen occurring in uh, in Brussels or in Belgium or in north uh, of France as well. But uh, let's say uh, to summarize a bit, um, let's. Look at the 19th century. The 19th century, so what do we have or, um, originally things that would be characterizing more as estamines, which are more kind of like a working class kind of like type of a, a kind of a, a cafe, well, a drinking places, let's put it this way, uh, and which are typically located in working class, uh, working class neighborhoods. And by the way, I wanted to use this opportunity to dispel a widespread myth of the working class being sort of like subjects to loads of drinking and spending a lot of money on alcohol. When you look back at the figures actually at the time, you figure that actually the bourgeoisie would be spending much more of its income in drinking than uh, the working class. So this is something that should, uh, I think, uh, I think to be dispelled in terms of myth. Whereas, um, uh, so yeah, basically, but this was sort of like a cradle of a working class culture with all the also organizing that we mentioned before, the fact that people would gather, they would form different types of organizations on the uh, uh, sport, it could be sports, could be like leisure, could be political, and so on. So that's one thing. But uh, in the 19th century, especially in the second half of the 19th century, we started to have a very specific phenomena, which were called uh, at the time cafes, which were like uh, pretty much imported, well, originally from Vienna, but then also from Paris, with this idea that you know we should have like these prestigious kind of like drinking places on the in the prestigious areas of the city, which was at the time, of course, mostly around the Place de la Monnaie in the city center, and then as the big boulevards of the center were kind of being created uh, uh, in the 1860s. Uh, it, was there, it was then actually on the boulevards. And that was really catering to a different type of, uh, of uh, patrons. Really, it was meant to be like places for the bourgeoisie to go, to, to actually to, uh, to sort of like be seen there, to really show how sophisticated they were also in the drinks that they were, they were, they, they were having. Actually, uh, beer was sneered at in many of those uh, cafes until uh, sort of like uh, export beers started to come like later in the, uh, the uh, uh, later in the 19th century. So it was really kind of like a, a really there was a clear class distinction between what an estaminet or all the likes would be like and what like uh, the cafe would be like and really with the, the idea that the first would be really a place like not only for the working class, but also many of them were actually quite mixed as well, a bit like what we're saying with people from all kind of like uh, 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 places coming, lots of bourgeois that wanted to go there also to kind of like, uh, you know, uh, to, uh, to, get, to live on the edge a little bit and also especially artists and students, of course. Uh, so that was one thing, but the cafe was really something like uh, for the bourgeois. That distinction 
became less and less clear as we as we went along, especially in the 20th century, also because uh, the makeup, for instance, of uh, some of these formerly more uh, bourgeois neighborhoods in the center changed. Yeah, also, so you, you, you would have sort of a little bit of gentrification, which would mean that yeah. people with maybe more disposable income would start to drink in what would have been called estaminets and maybe turn them into cafes. Is that kind of that the, the mix became difficult to... Yes, in part, there, there was this, uh, but there was also actually um, uh, an important aspect in terms of like um, the sort of like broader so societal changes, as it were, which is um, sort of especially after the Second World War, actually, uh, cafes with the uh, estaminets would have become really traditional places of getting together, kind of like spending your free time while you had some kind of like phenomenon like uh, everyone having televisions at home, then spending more time at home. The fact that, uh, yeah, prices were increasing as well. And also uh, the fact that uh, Brussels, like other big cities, was becoming less and less industrial. So the working class was becoming smaller and smaller. Uh, so that, that was, so basically it might be a bit of a, the two really. On the one hand, like the more kind of like traditional working class stamina slowly kind of like disappearing. And on the other, indeed, kind of like more of a fancy to go to these kind of like uh, more authentic places also by people with uh, higher incomes and higher social uh, so, uh, social status. But it's, it's not a clear cut phenomenon. I mean, it's uh, as, as always in social phenomena, you can't really say this is this and this is that. I mean, there's always a mix of. Uh, and especially not in a city like Brussels, which, you know, has got all these language communities and a lot of immigration yeah. and, and changing neighborhoods. Yeah. And if I may perhaps quickly on that, because I think it's just extremely interesting to look at the history of immigration in Brussels and the history of its cafes as well because it really reflects its very, yeah, very... Yeah, they're very totally linked, yeah. They're totally linked, yes, indeed. I mean, if you go to an area like around the Gare du Midi, for instance, you can totally see how cafes have changed from really being Spanish to uh, being uh, uh, um, uh, Moroccan, Portuguese, uh, African, whatever. Uh, I, would, I would invite everyone here to just like take a stroll down the Boulevard du Midi, so like the big uh, kind of like boulevard that goes all the way to Gare du Midi and just look at the cafes and look at the whole variety there. It's uh, just uh, crazy to see how it really reflects uh, the, the way, uh, so like the different immigration waves in Belgium. And I think what's one thing I find really interesting is that Despite all these social phenomena we've mentioned, cafes still remain very important places, especially for immigrant communities nowadays, because it's a place where you can go and meet up with, uh, with people that you know and uh, kind of like feel a bit surrounded and not uh, just so lonely as the life of an immigrant can always be, can sometimes be. Yeah, I have some interesting numbers from the, the late 19th century about the cafes in, in Brussels. So the, the numbers are from 1881, to be precise. At the time, Brussels has 395,000 inhabitants. We had then exactly 8,099 cafes, places to drink, let's say, in Brussels. It means one cafe for 48 people. It's fantastic for a brewer. It's, uh, it's really fantastic. <laughs> it translates in different ways. Every how every... If you take six houses at the time in, in, in Brussels, one of them was a cafe. So every six houses, there was a cafe. Cafe, not especially a big bourgeois, estaminet, whatever. It could be just a very simple place to drink. Uh, it means um, private people putting some tables and chairs uh, outside and selling mostly not beer in those very small places, but uh, spirits, Geneva, in this case, for very, very low price to the, to the, um, to the uh, lower classes. Who made Geneva uh, people, then? Uh, I, 
don't know about that. <laughs> maybe, maybe sometimes. And they, they had to pay uh, a tax for that. So it was, it was official. So it was a public place. I'm talking about public places, not private places, because of course the beer consumption at home was important as well. Uh, and so it means that uh, at the time, in one year time, 500 million glasses of beer of 33 centiliters were drunk in our beloved city. So. This only to, to, for you to, to understand how the culture of beer and culture of cafe was like how it super, existed at that super time. important. But th those, at, numbers, at the time. Like those numbers are really incredible and oh, show you one, how life uh, was, you know, yeah. as different from today. Yeah, one I love and I, I, I forgot. That, that year uh, we drank per head 455 liters of beer in Brussels per head. So everybody included, the babies, the people about to die, so, you know, uh, that sort of beer. Munich has always been the number one city for drinking in the world, but they were only 400 liters, we were 455. So I, of course, I have to smile, I'm a brewer, which may be not excellent for public health, but the, 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 um, the average alcohol content of a beer at the time is very low, it's like, count 2.5 ABV, uh, so... Uh, it's not like like today. I mean, but so yeah, beer cafe, the beer culture was present absolutely everywhere. Something interesting also, but I I cannot talk a lot about it. But maybe Hakim can. Um, I think that most of the time, um, in the cafes, it was mainly men that were present. Uh, we had waitresses, but the the customer was a male. But in Brussels, I read that every Sunday was the day where the, the wives would go to the cafe with their husbands, actually. I, I'm not sure that we have that in many other cultures, that that, that, that massive presence of women one day a week, okay, but it's, it's something at the time. But the wives and the children, because mm. uh, mm. when you go through uh, all these taminés, usually you have all this, uh, you have this corner of wooden uh, games uh, that you can put to your table, and I think on Sundays it's the family day, and you so would the games had to be there for the yes, and you you would go to the to the cafe or to the estaminet with your family. That <laughs> uh, like, stop me if I'm wrong, but uh, uh, I, I, I myself go into uh, Flanders estaminets uh, with my kid and my uh, husband on Sundays, and we play games and wooden games and have beers, and it mm. and we are not the only table to do that. Like you can mm. see, every table they have kids and stuff. Yeah. Um, but some of those statistics and you know what, what you were saying, Joaquin, show you just just how much like drinking in a cafe has changed um, as society has obviously changed dramatically. Um, you were coming in. If we look at a more sort of practical, contemporary sort of uh, time, you were coming in to start up a cafe, right? So. What were you seeing as the challenges to start up a cafe in Brussels when you did um, 2017, 2018? Uh, we opened the bar in 2017, in December. Yeah. So, yeah. so what were the things that were, like, what did you see? Uh, you know, was it obviously challenges, but what were the opportunities that you saw as well? Well, we, uh, we started with a big challenge was to be craft only. Uh, that was the, the main challenge. It was to be... Uh, craft only, not only in beers, but in everything from uh, the water that wouldn't be from Pepsi or Cola, uh, the juices, uh, the soft drinks, uh, even the cheese would be uh, in a, from a, from at, at the time La Fruitière, like really, like we really, really, really uh, de dedicated the bar to a craft only. 
so the challenge was to have craft please the people, please ourselves, because because if we are the the owners, if we decided to uh, to buy a bar and be the owners, is for us. But the main um, the main problematic is to make money. Let's be honest. Like if you open something, it's not to just survive; it's just to make money. So, how do you put some craft uh, and make money at the same time? You have to compromise. Uh, so the the thing, the, the good thing that we had 18 taps, so it was easy to put some expensive stuff, uh, really tricky, complex, uh, even uh, stuff from abroad. Uh, from Spain, from Italy, from the UK, from Germany. Um, that would be easy to put those on tap. And uh, more local, more, I don't like to say that, but simple. Uh, accessible. Accessible, yes. Uh, accessible beers uh, that are made in much more volume, but still craft. So because there are more volume of them, they are cheaper. So we could balance the prices, and uh, our main concern was for the customer to uh, not ruin himself to have a good beer. Yeah, uh, and I mean that you know that your vision was that was uh, it's a beautiful vision to have, and you were doing that with your life partner and business partner Jean Lan. Yes, Jean Lan. So um, I mean, obviously, you had so many discussions about you know trying to create this dream, this thing that you wanted to do. Was there any internal sort of tension in what he wanted as to what you wanted, or was everything on the same page? Yeah, it has been a really big sort of uh, of conflict between us. Um, <laughs> and you're one, right? <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then. Um, you can say it's a sort of conflict. Don't be you, He's not one. there, I can't say anything. <laughs> yeah, so what were the things that kind of, not, not that you disagreed on, but that you maybe would have liked to have seen more of or he would like to have seen more of? Yeah, well, he's been a, it's been a source of conflict because um, uh, I was, uh, like I said, born and raised in cafes, so I know how business works. Um, I'm more the down-to-earth business woman, like, okay, we don't want to put shit on tap uh, and make a lot of money and a lot of margins. Uh, that's not the point. But we need to, to speak money-wise. That was my part. He is more of the enthusiast, and I would not say the geek, because it's a really bad word. <laughs> but uh, he's more uh, the beer enthusiast, the more curious one. He wants to have some complex stuff that you don't find anywhere. Uh, so... and. Like, logically, it's more expensive. So that was to uh, make a, a balance between having, let's say, cheaper stuff accessible and nice stuff to bring the people that would spend money on more complex stuff. And even so, we had 18 taps. We still had problems deciding on what to put on tap because he has strong, such a strong character and me too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, yeah, you wanted, like, dry, drinkable, low ABV beers, and he wanted a bunch of imperial barley stouts? <laughs> no. No, that's, that's obviously it's an oversimplification. But yeah, but let's say yes. He wanted but, something uh, a little bit more special that maybe might not have been grounded in business reality. Yes, like he, yeah, it's, it's exactly that. He wasn't really realistic at all about what it's like to, um, to make the money. Yes, it's nice to have a really nice keg of something exceptional. It's nice, but you cannot have six steps of that. That's impossible. If you want to make money and your bar still be open 
in a few years, that's not how it works. Yeah. And but yeah. I don't want to like bash on Jean-Lan too much. No, it's not the point. He's not here to defend himself. And thanks to him, we had really nice beers to drink too. So yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, obviously the beer was very important, but you 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 also created a space where conversation was important and music was a big part of that vision too. Yes, yes. When we uh, decided to open the bar, we um, we realized that in Brussels, either you had really nice music in bars or in clubs and shitty beers. Or you would have great beers and shitty music. <laughs> and uh, one of the passion we have in common is uh, vinyls. Uh, we love, we collect vinyls for years. Um, we've been collecting for years. We have hundreds of them. So the point was to uh, be craft, really extreme craft, even in the music. So no Spotify, no nothing, only turntables and vinyls. And um, that was our freedom. Uh, actually, when we bought the bar and decided to be by our own, we bought freedom. Yeah. I, you've, you've mentioned the word craft a few times there, and I just want to ask you a little bit about what that means to you, because, you know, in Belgium, I think it's very hard to make, uh, uh, in every country, it's impossible to make it a, uh, like a definition of it. But, you know, sometimes it's, it's the, the smaller brewery making hoppy, hop forward beers, and to the exclusion of like family tradition, uh, and of course you have a wide variety of different types of breweries within that from you know Dupont to some who's a lot more commercial so like how, how when you, you're coming from France you have this bar which you want to offer something different is it tra- does traditional beer like from traditional family brewers from the traditional styles fit in to your vision along with kind of more modern stuff yes absolutely I, it must be at, at, the, at the menu uh, um, to me, having a craft um, mind, let's say, it's uh, to be to have an open mind. So, to me, craft it's easy. It doesn't mean any volume. It means that the brewer is still here to have the grain into the into the machine, and he um, you still have the human behind it, and uh, and. Um, um, and it's independent. That's really important. Yeah. Um, so of course, uh, family traditional triples—they uh, are uh, obviously welcome because you have to uh, satisfy all the palates. Um, well, not all, but m- the yeah. most of you can have. Well, I think you know, and, and independence is interesting because you know one of the things I wanted to ask about was um, one of the events that changed sort of cafe nature was when breweries began owning cafes and you know I'd be interested in hearing all your thoughts on like um, the you know I think a lot of the times there were small businesses back sort of going back to Estaminets now it's like you know you have places which are everything is on offer from that particular brewery and there isn't much else on offer and you know when did that happen historically maybe Joaquin and then Ivan like what does that mean for brewers in Belgium? Um, well, yeah, when, uh, again, it's one of those phenomena that uh, just went on, but let's say that from the end of the 19th century, uh, brewer, breweries became really serious about having their own brand, uh, with the Wilmanskopens being one of the first, with, of course, the uh, Café Hotel Metropole in the, in the, on Place de Brouquer, that probably most of you know. This was really a way of kind of like putting forward their corporate image, as we would say nowadays, and sort of like also, and, and in a way also, 
was part of the whole movement of uh, putting beer back into like the on the onto the bourgeois table as well. Sort of like uh, you know instead of it being sneered at being something that were people would fancy uh, having. But uh, yeah, Willemans Coopens built uh, quite a quite an empire in terms of like owning cafes and and uh, I mean many other breweries also did. Of course, they weren't the only ones. But uh, perhaps also this is something we were commenting with Yvonne before. It's true that uh, at the time when Interbrew bought uh, Willemans Coopens. They were almost more. They were more interested in actually their yeah. their real I mean, estate than in the actual beers, right? So, which is, I think, mm -hmm. even for a lot of modern family breweries who who are, have a lot of properties regionally, mm -hmm. um, it's their distribution network. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's su such a big value of, of, of the brewery as it is today. And you know, you mentioned William and Coopins, and that name still lives on in a lot of yeah. front of a lot of yeah, cafes today. Yeah, yeah, indeed. We shouldn't uh, over uh, underestimate, sorry, the fact that distribution is absolutely crucial uh, in the in the beer business, and and uh, and uh, the fact that you know uh, the fact that breweries could actually own their own kind of like uh, cafes, and uh, well, they could first of all, of course, impose their own beers, uh, but they could also make sure that you know there would always be like actually uh, people to buy to drink their beers, also, yeah. which is something very straightforward. Because but, what I'm interested in, yeah, like, obviously, yeah. it gives you that distribution power to yeah. not save your own brewery, but to make sure your your own brewery mm -hmm. is stable. But I'm also interested in what it does to the rest of the beer scene because yeah. it locks people yeah. out from a lot of different properties you know yeah. maybe if I just uh, can just add of one course. thing on that I mean um, as uh, say uh, after the second world war there was like a big wave of consolidation in the uh, be be Belgian beer industry and a good part of, the, of that was also because of that actually because of the distribution networks becoming bigger and bigger and that meant that, of course, like uh, cafes themselves, they were increasingly sort of like tied to the breweries. Uh, that, uh, yeah, so those brewery purchases with. were part of property purchases. Yeah, right? yeah, indeed, yeah, they were. They were. And, uh, and I think it's probably not a surprise that, you know, so many uh, uh, Belgian breweries disappeared in the, between, say, the 50s, 60s and the uh, 80s, 90s. It's also because of that, because of this consolidation. And then, of course, if, uh, if there's no way you can sell your beer, how, how will you survive as a, as a brewery, really? So. How will you survive as a brewery? Uh, <laughs> good question. <laughs> uh, no, I think, of, of course, it, it, it's a problem for, for, for the smaller players because they can't have a real access to, to the cafes. But uh, but everybody knows that basically. Um, but it's a problem for the cafes as well, uh, because especially today. Uh, today, a lot of people they want at least to have some choice and to, to have at least one beer on on draft, which is craft and and, and, and local. And if some uh, cafes can't get that because of uh, brewery contracts, as as we call them, they will lose clientele. Actually, so it's a, it's it's a it's a big problem. There are some some big players who are specialized in blocking absolutely everything and it's not especially the one everybody thinks of now um, yeah but, but there are but, but there still, are there are but, some but, but, regional but, but, but family brewers with equally as restrictive contracts oh yeah yeah of course but those those kind of contracts they are blocking some cafes to be successful today because uh, the the people the customers will will, will go to more open uh, free cafes as we call them with a larger choice which which is what they want to find now and and so it's not only bad for for the small birds it's bad for most of the cafes as well but it's it's a problem that is i think no solution because money is is, is always in the center of all that uh, there are those contracts because the, the, the big brewer paid for all the tap installation for the terrace for this for that and yeah, and, and and um, and 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 it's, it's a lot of time it's thanks to that that the the, the cafe owner could start his, his, his business but so may, maybe there should be more uh, education among the the, the, the cafe owners how, how to earn a business um, without those those 
all, all that money, uh, well, how, how to remain free, uh, actually, and have a successful business. But it needs a lot of skills, actually, and, and maybe, yeah, some, some schools or classes would be needed for that. It would be very helpful. Yeah, and I think from my conversations with cafe owners, what you see is that the property actually is still owned by the brewery, so the room for discussion is very small. Mm. And the thing about it is, like, cafe owners talk to their their clientele every day they know what they want and they hear them talking about other beers or about things they would like to see but they can't really do anything which is also damaging to the relationship between the cafe owner and the brewery who holds the contract with them to the point where it gets quite jarring but I mean I'm just curious as to you know you're a Brussels brewery you 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 know have stated many times you want to be very present in Brussels mm. how do you go about trying to have discussions with obviously free bars but are you also trying to have discussions with bars that are contracted to other breweries mm. yeah 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 we do, we, we, we do. Um, well there is one regulation European regulation that says that for the, the major player that's just one uh, big group uh, they are obliged to give room for one other uh, brewery if they bought all the lines for instance that just that's just one player um, actually but so yeah we always try to discuss and and if something that is important to, to understand is that it can be positive for the, the, the major brewery also to have, to have a craft local beer along uh, with them on, on, on draft. But because we're we're talking really draft there, but uh, usually yeah, yeah, when but they are possessed with uh, another brewery on draft, they can have bottles from another brewery, can they? Yeah, yeah but I'm talking about draft because that's where you make volume, when you have visibility. Yeah, Everybody wants to be on draft. But, but for, uh, for, but but for what, people what to see to that they have de la Seine in bottles in the fridge hmm. uh, or in the menu, you have them on, on, on bottles and not on yeah, draft. That, that, but, that, uh, that, yeah. So that's not the problem. So you, 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 you can do that, except with one of those guys that was a bit like whatever I will which, not throw him but what, 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 <laughs> what I wanted to say is that um, <laughs> sometimes it's better for the big brewer to have a crowd beer on there because it will attract more people, people in the seats. and they will start this is a bit of a cliche but they will start the evening drinking like a few zinni beer and then after a while they will want to drink something that is not to say tasteless but with less <laughs> character uh, let, let's say and not think about what they are drinking and they will drink several of them and so everybody will be happy at the end of the day everybody will make some some volume and without that crowd beyond draft the, the 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 customers would have go somewhere else and the big guy would have sell less of his lager yeah. I, I mean so uh, no la it's lager it's because I was about to say pills and <laughs> it's, a, it's a real lager fermented at high temperature so this is why it's a bit confusing <laughs> the, the but, but what, what, whatever so yeah no I mean that's you know fr from your point of view then Jody um, so that that's one side on the other side did you have people coming in and saying you know where's my jupe uh, well, when we uh, looked for a place to open the bar, uh, one of the m main characteristics we needed was to be free of brewing. That's what say, free of brewers. Yeah. Uh, that means we can put anything we want on tap. It's not owned by anybody but us. Uh, so... Um, we found the place and uh, we decided to put 18 taps and in this 18 taps, we decided to put two casks, or two hand pumps. Um, that would be, uh, th that was already a revolution uh, in the Brussels scene because uh, it's such an English way of, uh, or a British way to, uh, to pour the beer. 
And um, yes, uh, I anticipated the, um, I call them the papa pills. Mm -hmm. uh, he wants his pills, he doesn't mind. He wants an easy drinking beer, uh, low ABV and cheap. So he doesn't want a top fermented ale that's been conditioned in cask? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay, and how do you explain that to, to, peop to people like that? Well, I don't because uh, I would find this kind of beer craft. Uh, so Papa Pils would have his Papa Pils in my bar because that was one of the things I said to Jean-Lin, it was the, the conflict. No, we need to have the simple, classic, cheap beer for Papa Pils. That's really important. And then I won uh, on this country. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it was craft. Uh, so we, uh, uh, it wasn't a question for me to have it or not. We had, it. we have to have it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's part of it's part of the mix that has to be there. Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, now's a good time actually to take some questions. So maybe we have a first one here. Um, go easy on our guests. They're yeah, <laughs> no, 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 do free. Um, so yeah, one thing that seems obvious to me is that when you want as a craft brewer um, and as a cafe owner, craft cafe owner, uh, when you want to touch the largest possible public uh, in Belgium, when you know that one, what people in Belgium drink the most is a, how do you say that, a pils, a lager? It's, I think, it's something that uh, we waited a, probably a bit too long to, to do is uh, going where uh, it hurts for the industry. It's go going towards those kinds of beer, which I know are difficult to brew. I know that in order for them to work, they have to be at a, a lower price because people are used to pay cheap prices for a cheap beer. But... Um, for me, and I'm a beer enthusiast, not a geek, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, it's where we will, I hope someday we will prevail, is where we will be able to, to sell a craft pills, <laughs> real pills, uh, to any customer because it'll be uh, as easy to buy as any other uh, industrial cheap beer. Yeah. I mean, any reflections on that while we get the microphone over? Yeah, well, as you said, it's, uh, it's really, um, as cheap as it is, it's one of the most difficult beer to brew because of the, um, well, I think you agree, but uh, because of the, the yeast you use and how it's, uh, it takes so long to, uh, to ferment and stuff. So, it's ironic because it's a difficult beer to brew, it takes a long time to ferment, and it has to be cheap, uh, which is a conflict for the brewer. Uh, this is the thing, this is where I agree, yeah. huge, actually. Well, this is where I agree, agree with Ivan, is like in his very um, intentional use of the word lager rather than pills, because I do see a lot of what's on tap in Belgium as European lager, that's the way I would think, because it's... I think to, that kind of does an, an injustice to pills, which, you know, you have different, you know, use of noble hops, it's a drier beer, much longer cold conditioning fermentation and conditioning. And some of these, you know, beers that you see on top in Brussels are being pushed out in seven to nine days, you know, which is why the prices can be kept low and economies of scale. So I think to make a craft pills, 
would be amazing. But you have two problems is the price point, and the second is um, it's going to be probably drier and more bitter and more hoppy than what the the what what was the term pop pop pills is used to drinking and i think that's that's a bridge too far in a short period of time i don't know if you've any but uh, i will speak only for myself but it, it's not my my fantasy to replace all the industrial lagers by craft lagers um just because i think about the people uh the people a lot of people don't want that. They are very happy with their industrial lager, and I fully respect them for, for, for that. And so I think that there are more doors that should be opened, but it would be like uh, reverse authoritarianism mm-hmm. to impose craft things to people who don't give a shit to craft mm-hmm. things. Well, I think yeah. and, and, and good for them, I mean. There is no obligation for that. So I think we, we should manage... That there is room for more different. Disagree. Types I think of, everyone should of, be drinking cues. <laughs> everyone in a Brussels cafe should be forced to you. drink all the cues. Used to be like that. He's a lambic fascist. Too. <laughs> um, Next question. Uh, so I've been really impressed by how much of a personal commitment the panel have had and the choices they've made about writing, about creating a brewery, about creating a cafe. Um, I'm also aware the world has changed with COVID and you know, we see all sorts of things coming down the track. The question I wanted to ask was, if you were doing what you started out with today, would you do it the same way? And what would you change? Great question. So maybe let you guys pick that up. COVID, uh, what, what would you do differently? What would you do the same if you knew it was coming? Um, I would certainly not. <laughs> sure thing. Um, I would do something, well, I, I discovered lately that I can only do one thing is, is making beer and I would still be making beer for sure but on a way smaller scale uh, certainly uh, I would not dare to start um, a business the size of ours now well we are almost 20 years old and this is why we are at, at this position now but starting like 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 we are now that that, that would be just a, a suicide for me so I would I would still be a brewer but on, on a very small scale and that's a really interesting answer because you have a lot of people that have such ambition when they start mm. and actually you should be very aware of what your ambitions are when mm. you start. Yeah, yeah. And aware that the market is totally saturated because the, um, everybody wants to sell beer in Brussels. I mean, the, the local brewers, of course, but every single Flemish brewer wants, every single Wallonian brewer wants to sell in Brussels. And so there are way too many beers on the market. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to say that. And especially because half of the brands you see are made by I sold by fake brewers. It's not even made by 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 the people who sell them to to you, and that that's a huge problem. It, the, the market is, has become totally confusing for people. When you go to a supermarket, which rarely happens to me, but some, I, I I don't go often. So when I go, it's always a surprise when I see the shelves, and and I'm in in the industry, but half of the brands that I see on the shelves, I don't know about it i never heard about it and when when you you look closely at the labels it's it's always made by the three same breweries basically mm. and that that's also a huge problem that we have now on the market jody if you saw covid coming down the line beforehand would that have changed the way you did things i wouldn't change a thing <laughs> no no why um because uh we opened a bar that wanted to be close to people and uh, covid has taught us that it was really, really important to be close to people. Uh, the closest, the best, <laughs> ironically, uh, with the virus. But um, uh, I can see, like, just to see the relief in my customers' eyes in between the lockdowns, 
to be able to come back, even with the restrictions and the the meter and a half in between tables and and the the mask and everything, just to see the relief to be back, I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, we talked a lot about sustainability today, but actually we saw that our societies are not sustainable without cafes, and that's exactly what. You're yeah, saying. so that's like. COVID has taught us how important cafes are in social lives for people. Yeah. Like, uh, when you said earlier that it saved life, I agree. And I think uh, the lockdowns uh, and, um, and people not being able to see each other, especially in cafes, uh, I think it was uh, a miss for us to save lives. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joaquin, I know it's kind of, you, you're more in the, the historical and activist life, but I mean, if you could, if I could put you out of your comfort zone and get you to cast your mind forward and your crystal ball, do you think, how, how do you think COVID will have a long-term effect on, on cafe culture in Brussels? Yeah, uh, well, that's uh, anyone's guess, really. Um, I don't know. I, I think the, the initial feeling I have is that, unfortunately, it seems to be kind of like, uh, even st sort of like a... Um, Strengthening the trends that we saw before COVID, which I suppose, which I, is what I was mentioning to you as a homogeneity. You see more and more cafes that follow the same concept, that, which is quite, kind of ironic because they're really trying to stand out as being like, a, because we're in a very competitive individualist kind of like society, they really try to stand out as being this, this and that. But then at the end of the day, when you look at the recipes they use, they're exactly the same. I mean, the same type of kind of like uh, decor, the same type of like uh, furniture, the same type of uh, kind of like type of surroundings. Um, it's like, sorry, it's exactly like breweries making IPAs, by the way. Yeah, exactly. It's Sorry, because I introduced yeah. There must be a reason for that, though. I mean, sure. the reason is either that it works financially, so that it continues right. to happen, or people just lack imagination. But I think it might also be uh, because, unfortunately, many uh, cafes have been super massively financially weakened by, uh, by the COVID crisis. And many of them are just had to go close shop or had to sort of like uh, stop their lease or sell and so on. So it's an opportunity also for like investors. And I think this is a, one important thing we should also, it's not because people are not creative or because this is what people want. And in a way, like nothing in life is un unavoidable. I mean, it's also something we, we can do something about. But I think the fact that, you know, many, many cafes have run into such difficulties over the last couple of years and that all, all of this is up to, uh, for sale, up for grabs, this is a massive business opportunity for investors that are just seeking to reproduce the exact same concept everywhere because it actually, unfortunately, works pretty well. And which also takes me to my one thing I keep on saying to everyone is like one thing I find very dispiriting as a beer enthusiast myself as well is how craft beer has gone hand in hand with gentrification in many cases over the last few years. And I don't think it has to be like that. I think there's a million things we can do differently to, yeah. to make sure that doesn't happen. But for me, it's also so it's, it's kind of been, to, yeah. also to organize and to... It's to, been tarred with yeah. sort of the negative connotations yeah. of hipsterism and, yeah. and moving into areas and destroying yeah. the soul of a neighborhood, effectively. Yeah. yeah. And, and by the way, this is our, our main prod, is that we, 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 we made a beer that the normal people enjoy now in, 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 in the corner... Jupe Café, let's call it like, 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 like that, that will never be gentrified. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's, it's still possible, but it's very hard and the, the, the main tendency goes against us. And the investors, you told about it, it's totally true, but there are three types. It's the, the, the big, the major uh, brewery groups, 
um, private investors who are there only for making easy money, but also some distributors, beverages distributors. And, and nobody in the public uh, knows about them. They are totally hidden, but they buy like crazy now. And it's also to impose the brands that give them the, the, the more money and to, to have those co same concepts everywhere. And those are extremely dangerous um, actors also on, on, on the market. But, but all this will stay hidden for the public. Uh, and and that, that's very dangerous. Any more questions? Yeah, let's, yeah. Have you got a microphone? Yeah, hi, Ted. If we could maybe just touch upon, so there were two things regarding how politics was less or more involved into in cafes and how cafes has saved lives previously. So if you could maybe compare how was that in the, fa in, in the past and how was that relate to nowadays? Because if it could be still the same and to what extent for both topics. So saving lives, quote unquote, and also in politics or any other new social change that can be prevalent in today's world. So like, yeah, how, how, were, how were they a seat of political power then and why is it not the case today? Yeah, I think uh, one, one thing that uh, worried uh, the powers to be and, uh, uh, and the establishment a lot about cafes, and especially working class cafes, is that there were places where they couldn't, that they couldn't control. So they didn't quite know what was happening in these cafes, you know, like in the middle of all these discussions and uh, all of that. And, and I think uh, uh, it, to some extent, uh, it, it was also kind of like a, a safe haven for many people also that want to organize because uh, uh, when you were in the factory, when you were even like in your day-to-day -day lives, you had a lot of social control, whereas in cafes, you can find places really actually where you could kind of like be kind of like organizing, discussing about political subjects without anyone really sort of trying to uh, to watch. But uh, by the way, it's uh, unsurprising that uh, of course uh, the uh, so like. Uh, the police uh, would be actually going to the cafes quite a lot and trying to have informants to know what was going on because obviously they knew that something was brewing, quite literally. Um, so that was uh, something. And can it still happen nowadays? Well, I think, I think some cafes still remain a place uh, which are probably much more watched now that, uh, that back then also because there's so many more surveillance technologies these days that it's just extremely difficult uh, to avoid being watched. But they still are kind of like one of those kind of uh, safe havens where you can actually sort of like take a step back and try to kind of like uh, look at things differently. And, uh, and I think uh, in many ways, for me, perhaps uh, the, the threat would be that if we go in this direction where cafes just remain places where you just go with like separate groups and people don't really interact with each other. For me, it's part of this whole aspect of we kind of like, uh, we have lost so much uh, to individualism and stuff to, with this aspect of organization. So it's maybe part of a broader cultural shift. I don't know if I'm clear, but that's where people should also try to meet up again and try to also kind of like do stuff uh, collectively uh, again. But I think, I think, I think people, cafes can do that. Yeah. People talking about politics has become a little bit more, I think, more sensitive. And I think the cafe is still one place where that, that definitely happens. The other part of the question was about saving lives. So maybe you want to give maybe more of an example about like how that's the case with cafes. But uh, the question was making comparison between, like, say, 19th century and now. Uh, I don't, I don't really know, and I don't claim to have any expertise on on, on the subject. But I think it was, it was the basically the same. Uh, the people, especially for the lower classes living in very very small housings, uh, they needed just to breathe. Well, briefing in the cafe where everybody everybody was smoking is <laughs> a concept I, I understand, but you 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 mean I, I mean socially uh, brief and, and and meet other people and and uh, because 
Of course, there is always a problem of alcoholism, and it was uh, massive in, in Belgium, not because of beer, because of bad Geneva at the time in Belgium, uh, whatever. But um, those people w would have drunk the same amount at home. But uh, a good thing that, that, that happens in the cafe, but it has two, two faces, a positive and a negative. But I think that the, the social control you have in a cafe is important. Of course, the social control can push you to, to drink too much. But I think in the in good places, uh, at least the the staff, the owner, and the other customers will still watch you. And if you are friends with those people and you go too far, they will be there around you to say, "Hey, Joe, calm down, calm down. It's not necessary to drink so much, etc." Et in in a, in the the context context of a big party, I know that the people will more push you to, to drink, but the reverse exists, I mean, it's a, you, you are with other humans and, 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 and most of the time there is empathy towards you and they, and they, they, will, they will help you if, if, if you need it. I've seen that many, that. many, many times. Mm. Yeah, and uh, as a sister of a bar owner, when I was a teenager, well, close to be uh, an adult, but still, um, uh, I knew uh, once I put my foot in my brother's bar, nothing could happen to me. And I would go in a neighborhood uh, having a, a marathon. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew, uh, oh, she's Jeremy's sister. Nothing can happen to me. And he knew that. Like, uh, and I know when my son would be uh, able to do that by himself, um, if I bring him to, to the, the right bars and, uh, and cafes, I know uh, he has many... Uh, uncles and uh, um, and uh, aunts everywhere that nothing's going to happen to him ever. Uh, you, you protect each other from the drink, from the drinking or from any problem you can have related to the drinking. Uh, that's the cafe uh, ambiance, I guess. And, and very concretely in the in the Marole, most of the cafes, the the typical cafes, are gone and it's extremely sad. But uh, I have witnessed my, myself. Uh, uh, moments when when a regular uh, was absent uh, in the cafe, everybody was panicking, and they went to knock at, the, at this door, and 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 sometimes and fully they found the person dead at, at home. Some sometimes uh, one one person had a heart attack, and he could just be saved just because of the empathy that that, that, that surrounds you when you are That's in a cafe where you are a, a regular. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. a second family. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and if I'm, I'm. I, I should double check that. I, I saw that yesterday, to be honest, and I, I didn't do any double checking. But you know, the the estaminet, uh, the stam part of it, and the stam cafe in Brussels dialect is the cafe that that, 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 that that is your your, your local. The mm. English people would say, and I read uh, that stam means family actually. Oh. And and I, I have to double check that, to be honest. It's just in one book that I've seen that. Uh, I don't have, I don't like to have only one source, but, but it says everything to, to me. Because a good cafe, it's like your other family. Well, I mean, we're, we're all here together in the cafe, so I guess we're all family today. And you all know each other's favorite cafe moments and experiences from earlier on. Do we have one? Did I see one more question? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, uh, listening to what you're saying, it, the word hospitality is coming to my mind. And I think what so many bar owners are so good at is the hospitality side of it. But if we think about the 21st century business models, uh, if you look, the big brewers are going up and down the supply chain, aren't they? And... Um, 
And we talk about things like platforms and technologies that these um, tied tied venues have. And I'm just wondering, uh, the the cafe owners like like you and the brewers like you, Ivan. Um, they're quite fragmented when you compare them with the big brewers. So how is it that you can speak to each other and that you can network, to use another 21st century term, so that you benefit from the technologies or platforms that exist and the consumer benefits too? That's a really good question. So, you know, does that thing that exists maybe in the bigger brewery supply chain exist for you guys? A way to use technology to streamline orders, to communicate with each other, to find out where you're ordering your beer from different people? Um, I'll start. <laughs> <laughs> when, we, uh, when we opened the bar, it was really important to us to, um, to have a really, really straight connection uh, with the brewers we work with. And it was impossible for us to sell a beer uh, uh, that we don't know who made it. Uh, we need to. We needed to to know who made it personally. Uh, we would prefer to uh, give money, uh, a lot of money, uh, to a brewer that made something so so, but we know we are, we we trust and we trust that it can improve. That someone who makes the perfect beer in the world that would sell like this, but he's a real asshole. Mm -hmm. That that would be the first first point. But with, with the greatest respect, you are the one. You are the 1%, perhaps. Not every cafe owner will, will hold I to know. those because it may not be and as commercial. I know, and I think I'm an exception. We are an exception in this. But uh, we decided for this uh, to pursue this, uh, this, uh, this idea to uh, work only uh, like indirect with the Brussels breweries. So uh, my partner, we... We'd go grab the, the, um, all the kegs in the Brussels breweries by himself and see, oh, Yvon, uh, what's new? Uh, oh, uh, maybe, uh, it's really hypothetical, but, uh, <laughs> uh, oh, the Zinnebier wasn't as good last year. Um, and, uh, what, what did what? you do? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, that would be great because you could see, uh, you could see, oh, um, let me let me let you taste uh, the new Brussels calling. It's not out yet, but uh, let's have uh, the Brussels calling or whatever. But, but isn't that a nineteenth-century model in some ways? Yes, it is. But it's really important to spend some time uh, with the one you work with, because uh, it's so so easy to have mistakes with the with the technology, um, like just uh, when you send the text. Uh, the intonation is not there, and uh, maybe you want to say something that the people uh, at the other end doesn't understand because the intonation is not there. That's the same thing when you go directly to the brewery to touch your kids. Uh, you speak, uh, oh, maybe uh, be careful because it's a bit saturated or it's under-saturated. Maybe you should put it like this, like this, like this, and it's those kind of... Are you talking? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, uh, we use these hopes for this beer. Uh, we used this yeast for this beer. Uh, it's particular because we made it with this guy or this guy and this guy. And you have the history of the beer you're selling. You have a plus value 
of what you're selling to your customer because you just saw the brewer in the afternoon that you just plugged the beer. I don't doubt any of this. It's just it's very difficult to get a saison in a bar in this country, right, unless you're in particular parts of the country. So I'm looking really, I'm asking really about the scalability of what you do so that we can enjoy the different beers that are so well brewed around the country. Yeah, well, it's much work. It's, it's much more work. You just have to uh, touch yourself to the brewery and talk to the brewer and to uh, understand what you sell and talk to him. And it takes hours on, on top of your schedule, normal weekly schedule. But that's the job. A good owner, a good bartender knows his product. That's, I think that's how you sell good beers. We make it easier for, for the bar owners. We spend our lives in the cafe, so we, we, they don't have That's to come true. to us. They can, of course, they are always welcome, but we are often in their places, actually, yeah. like all yeah, of you us. Have a, you have a nice, uh, nice uh, team. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I think it's a good question. Maybe that's uh, more of a question about the future sustainability of inverted commas craft because of the fact that at, at essence what it is is it's, it's that direct link to the producer, it's the direct link to the cafe owner and maybe that's not scalable. I don't know the answer to that but I think it's a really interesting question. Maybe, I think we're, we're pretty much finished unless someone has a very burning, okay, great. Um, so I want to thank first of all all you guys for coming. Um, you know, we can't have this uh, an, a, a atmosphere, we can't have the, the fun, the crack without you guys here so please first of all give yourselves a round of applause. I'd also like to uh, thank the panel. So uh, Joaquin, Jody, and Yvonne, could you all give them a, a, a round of <laughs> Belgian Smack is a big team effort. We have Cliff on photos and Peter Jan on audio, so please thank them for all their work today. And special thank you to Owen for including me in the... Um, the, the roundup of beer cult events this weekend and I want to wish him all the best with his book uh, launch this weekend so round of applause for Owen thank you, thank you. so uh, let's all go out and have a drink together and maybe I'll see you again at another event and enjoy the beautiful sunshine here in, in Brussels this weekend and we can continue our, our chat later so thank you all and I hope you all listen when we publish the, the podcast later on yes do you love what you do <laughs> and we cut Thanks to Owen Walsh for hosting the Beer Cult Festival and making this live podcast possible. Thanks to Cliff Lucas for shooting photography and assisting with event preparation. And thanks to Peter Jan Jortens for audio recording and sound engineering. Thanks once again to Yvonne, Jody and Joachim for being so generous with their time and for being such great panel guests. And thanks to everyone who came along to the event and participated in the discussion. It was really interesting. I really enjoyed it. Thanks also to Visit Flanders for their support in producing this podcast and to the Gold Blomacher Café for hosting on the day. And last but not least, thanks to you guys for listening. It would mean a lot if you could recommend this podcast to someone you think might enjoy it. 
Make sure you get yourself into a Brussels beer cafe sooner rather than later. My name is Brendan Kearney. This has been the Belgian Smack Podcast. Until next time, love what you do.